Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And we want to get started into our verse-by-verse study through the book. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time of study together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word now. Pray that you would give me the grace to teach accurately and clearly and help us to gain an appreciation for who we have in the person of Jesus Christ as Matthew begins there and builds on that through the course of the book. So, Lord, again, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ to help us to grow in our understanding, in our appreciation of who he is, even uh, in our study here this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I say, we today start through the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew bridges the gap, really, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in between uh, what we call the Old Testament prophets and uh, the New Testament scriptures, we have what are called the 400 silent years. There was no uh, prophetic uh, disclosure during those uh, silent years. It was just silent. And then all of a sudden, uh, with New Testament revelation, bursts on the scene uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seemed like it was out of place, really. All of a sudden, it just bursts on the scene. But in truth, it was in perfect accord with God's timing. And uh, so note, uh, whoops, sorry, uh, Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God's perfect timing. And we will see that as we work our way through the text here, even this morning. Before we get into Matthew chapter 1, which uh, presents the genealogy and the birth of Jesus Christ, let me give you a little background to the book of Matthew, just kind of an overview. Uh, The author is Matthew, also called Levi. He was a man who, by background, collected taxes. You know, you have your favorite tax collectors, right? You appreciate those people who do that kind of work, right? Maybe not so much, and it was certainly true in uh, Matthew's day that he was not appreciated, would have been considered a traitor by his own people, because he worked for the Roman government in collecting Roman taxes. A Jew collecting Roman taxes. You probably don't get lower than that in the minds of the average Jewish person in the days of Matthew. But at the call of Jesus, his life changed. He left all and followed Christ, becoming one of the twelve disciples. So it's like, who does Jesus choose? Well, one of them was a tax collector. Uh, date written, we don't really know when it was written. Uh, many believe it was uh, around A.D. 50. Uh, conservative scholars are pretty much in agreement that it was written probably before A.D. 70 because the book seems to imply that it was written from the perspective that the temple was still standing uh, at that time. The purpose is to present... Uh, To the Jewish people, that Jesus was in fact the prophesied, promised Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. His target audience is the Jews. It's Jewish in orientation, and it is replete, therefore, with Old Testament references and quotes, uh, more so than any other New Testament writer. That makes sense, right? He's a, a Jew writing to Jews, and they were very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So he quotes the Old Testament a lot in the book. It's one of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means similar. And uh, there you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. 
John's uh, unique. Uh, 92% of the material in, in John is unique to John. There's not a lot of overlap between John and the other Gospels. Matthew is one of the synoptic or similar Gospels. Matthew, Matthew gives more detail on the life of Christ than the other Gospels. It also gives uh, more in terms of uh, large blocks of Jesus' teaching than the others. And Matthew alone makes specific future references to the church, the coming church of Jesus Christ. The other Gospels don't do that specifically. Matthew shows the credentials of Jesus the Messiah and then chronicles his presentation to Israel and their rejection. Matthew also shows that one day Christ will come again. And until then, we are to be about obeying the Great Commission, which is how the gospel ends. Really, in a nutshell, that is the gospel of Matthew right there. Now, uh, you probably can't see a lot of this here, but uh, the theme is Christ the King. And we will begin this morning in chapter 1, chapter 1 and 2, the advent of the king, proving his legal right to the throne by his genealogy. And then uh, chapter 3, the herald of the king, chapter 4, the test of the king, chapters 5 through 7, the pronouncements of the king, 8 through 10, power of the king, 11 and 12, the rejection of the king, 13, parables of the king, 14 through 16, revelations of the king, 17 through 20, instructions of the king, 21 through 23, formal rejection of the king, 25 through, uh, 24 through 25, predictions of the king, 26, 27, the passion of the king, and finally 28, the resurrection of the king. You see the operative word there, right? King, right. And that's how Matthew begins. Strong emphasis, as we will see this morning. Properly understood, Matthew 1 presents Christ's human credentials and also his divine credentials to be the Messiah. He had to be both human and divine to meet all the criteria of the Old Testament prophets. It all intersects perfectly in Jesus Christ, as Matthew will demonstrate and as we will see this morning. Uh, Let me give you just a brief outline as far as what we're looking at in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 1 through 17, the genealogy of Christ, and then uh, 18 through 22, explanation of the virgin birth. And then uh, kind of uh, the character and obedience of Joseph right at the, at the end of the chapter. Well, let's get started here. Chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This first verse serves as sort of a title for the genealogy section seen in the first 17 verses here. But it also serves to introduce the thematic idea that Jesus is of the royal lineage of David. The son of David, who fulfills the covenant promises. The theme of Jesus being the promised king, the son of David, is prominent in Matthew. And is seen here in the very first verse. When it says the book of genealogy, that can be translated as record of origins. Matthew 1 and 2 presents a record of the origins of Jesus Christ in terms of of his family tree. Not from the divine side, because he's the eternal son of God, but in terms of uh, his humanity. Notice what it says there. Um, Genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is his historical human name given to him at the time of his circumcision. It corresponds to the name Joshua in the Old Testament. It literally means Yahweh is salvation. And thus it serves to define him. 
Jesus is Yahweh God who provides salvation. This is his name, his person, who he is. He is Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ is a Greek word corresponding to the Hebrew word Messiah. It literally means anointed one. And those anointed in the Old Testament were set apart for a special purpose by God. Jesus is the anointed one. Uh, The most special one set apart by God for the most important role ever. The term Christ is rooted in the Old Testament. It designates uh, the special promised coming one who would come as both deliverer and king. Son of David, very significant. Uh, Genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Son of David is a messianic designation occurring ten times in the book. God promised David that a son would sit on his throne forever. God promised David an eternal throne and a son to sit on it. Jesus is this promised son of David who will fulfill this promise that we commonly refer to as the Davidic covenant. Son of Abraham. Uh, As a given, if he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. But uh, it does make a specific point. Abraham is the human father of the Jewish nation. Uh, God decided to build a nation, started with Abraham. Of course, it went through Isaac and Jacob and the sons of Jacob. But uh, it was to Abraham that God gave that great covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant, which would involve land, seed, and blessing. Jesus is the one who brings about the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham which would extend to all the nations, which includes you and me here this morning. Note that promise in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. God speaking to Abraham, I will curse him who curses you. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, blessed with salvation. That's us. We're part of all the families of the earth in you. And so he traces it back to Abraham, I think, because uh, of that connection. D.A. Carson says, Jesus the Messiah came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and of the Gentile blessing promises to Abraham. That is seen in the first verse here. Well, genealogical records today are not studied too seriously by the average uh, reader of the scripture. Uh, How much time have you uh, spent meditating on the genealogy sections? Uh, Well, me either, honestly. However, they really are essential in establishing the claims of anyone who would uh, claim to be the Messiah. It is uh, assumed by many that the genealogical records at the time of Christ were kept uh, perhaps in the temple. We're not totally sure, but uh, many think that they were kept in the temple. Holman Christian Study Bible says... Jews in David's line carefully preserved their genealogies because they knew from the Old Testament prophecies that one of their descendants would be the Messiah. They did know that. Evidence in Josephus and rabbinic texts suggests that the genealogical records were kept in public registers. So you could go and check out. Here's the, here's the line here. Here's, uh, here's your descendants. And, and here's your connection back to David if you're of the line of David. Listen to this. It's significant. Wayne Jackson says, At the time of the Lord's birth, ample genealogical evidence was available to check a Hebrew's historical background. 
Such would be crucial in determining whether Christ had the necessary genealogical pedigree to establish his ancestry. If these records were not available, any attempt to argue for the Lord's Messiahship on the ground of Old Testament prophecy, at least pertaining to his ancestry, falls flat. The fact is, however, those genealogical records substantially vanished when the Romans slaughtered and or dispersed the Hebrew populace in A.D. 70. Accordingly, no modern Jew or anyone after 70 A.D. could possibly argue that he is the promised Messiah since he would be unable to establish his lineage from David. You understand, all the genealogical records were destroyed in 70 A.D., with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. How do you prove uh, your genealogical record after that point? You can't do it. What's the implication from that? Well, if you're going to use this as a proof that Jesus is the Messiah, it had to happen before the records were destroyed. God in perfect timing sent his son before the records were destroyed. So it could be established by all who were on the scene there. This is really quite profound to think about. Jesus had to be born before 70 AD to prove his genealogical qualifications as Messiah. The timing of God sending his son historically came just prior to this time so that the truth of his genealogical records could be established. And those records were still available uh, in the time that Matthew was writing, as I say, we believe, in about 50 AD. Indeed, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the three great patriarchs on which the nation of Israel was founded. God repeated to each one of them the truth of the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which is the conduit of all covenant blessings, ultimately. And then Judah is specifically mentioned here in reference to his brothers. Why Judah? Why not the other uh, 11 brothers? Well, it is because the scepter belongs to the tribe of Judah. Jesus had to come from through that tribe. Yes, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then specifically through Judah. Had to go a specific route. And we see this back in Genesis 49, verse 10, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The right to rule goes through Judah. It is clear that the genealogy given by Matthew was selective, in which some names are omitted. He is drawing a genealogical line from Abraham to Jesus, but he does so selectively, and he does so to make his point that indeed Jesus meets all the genealogical qualifications of being the one who is of the royal line of David. Verses 3 through 6, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab, Amminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now there's some interesting things to note here. It was not customary to list women in Jewish genealogies. But here we have four women that are mentioned. 
And in each case, they have an unusual background. Tamar was uh, immoral with her father-in-law Judah, Genesis 38. Rahab was a prostitute by background. Ruth was a Gentile Moabitess. And her who had been the wife of Uriah, namely Bathsheba, is not even mentioned by name here. Two of these women were Gentiles, Rahab and Ruth, and three of them were morally stained. This shows a number of things. Number one, Jesus also had Gentile blood represented in him. It's represented here in the genealogical record. He is the savior of the world. And also the grace of God takes sometimes the most unlikely of candidates and uses them to a glorious end. God's plan illustrates and magnifies his grace. And finally, in Christ, the barriers of sex and race are torn down. As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, you are all one in Christ Jesus. God uses a motley crew to develop his great messianic story. It's really quite amazing. It's ultimately a story about God and what, how he is working and how he can use anyone to accomplish his purposes. It champions the story of grace. And we're all trophies of grace. I mean, if God had to use uh, like really p- quite perfect instruments or near perfect instruments, you'd have a very small group to work with, right? Namely one, <laughs> Jesus. But he uses the uh, people. He uses sinners uh, that come to know him. This is the Messiah's story. And to think that he can use uh, you and me even in the ongoing story of redemptive history. And he is. You're part of the story if you are one of God's children. Note in verse 6 it says, Jesse begot David the king. That is significant because in all the naming and listing in this genealogy, only David is called the king. There are lots of kings in the list. But only David is called the king. And this is because it is through David, in keeping with the Davidic covenant, that the kingdom is brought in, and that through the son of David, the greater son of David, uh, that is the Messiah. Through David comes the king. The kingdom belongs to David. This is what the Davidic covenant is all about. God promised the kingdom and the king to David. Note also that the genealogy here in Matthew 1, 6 says David begot Solomon, while in Luke it traces the genealogy through Nathan, the son of David. And that becomes an important detail as the story unfolds, as I will show you. Verse 7, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Azan, Azan begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, and Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Vince, this is why they pay us the big bucks to read these things here. (laughs) It's challenging, but anyway. um, Both good kings and wicked kings are listed, all in the line of David. Uh, Manasseh was the worst of the worst, and yet at the end he was converted Manasseh is an interesting study. I mean, he was the worst of the worst. And yet at the end, he, he was converted. It's amazing how God works. Well, this mixture, again, shows something of the strange and unexpected workings of God's providence. In the all-wise plan of God, 
providing salvation through his Messiah and who he uses in that mix to bring the Messiah into the world. Verse 11, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Uh-oh, here's a problem. Here's a problem. It's a problem. His name is Jeconiah, also called Jehoiachin, or simply Kaniah. Jeconiah, you see, and his line were cursed. He was not to have a descendant sit on the throne of David, although he was in the line of David. Uh, We read about this curse back here in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, down as childless. A man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants, none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David. And ruling anymore in Judah. Here he is. Messiah's traced back to this guy. Well, how does that work? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, God promised David an eternal Davidic covenant through his son, Solomon. But in the line of Solomon is Jeconiah, who was cursed. So here is the dilemma. How can God's promise that the throne of David be established forever through Solomon and the reality of the curse both be fulfilled? Well, that's a thoughtful question, isn't it? Yes. The answer is this. There is a throne line that goes through Solomon, which leads to Joseph. And this is really the the genealogy up to Joseph here in Matthew. Luke gives it through Mary, up to Mary. But there's a throne line that goes through Solomon, which leads to Joseph. This is the genealogy of Joseph. But there's also a bloodline that goes through another son of David named Dathan. And this is the genealogy of Mary. So note, uh, William MacDonald has a great summary, says it more succinctly and better than I can, so let me just quote him. If Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he would have come under this curse. Yet he had had to be the legal son of Joseph in order to inherit the rights to the throne of David. The problem was solved by the miracle of the virgin birth. Jesus was the legal heir to the throne through Joseph. He was the real son of David through Mary. The curse on Jeconiah did not fall on Mary or her children since she did not descend from Jeconiah. This is absolute precision, fulfillment, meeting all the exact genealogical requirements to be the Messiah. Jesus had to come through the line of Solomon to assume the throne as promised to David. But he could not come through, uh, come through the line of Solomon because cursed Jeconiah was of that line. How could it happen then? Well, by way of, are you ready for this? Adoption. Adoption. Legal adoption. Through the throne line of Joseph. 
Jesus had to be of the bloodline of David to be a true son of David. This was fulfilled through Mary, who was of the line of Nathan, also a son of David. This line had no curse. So in the genealogy of Christ, both the throne line and the bloodline converge in the Messiah. Jesus through both Joseph and Mary, as only God could do. So let me uh, put it up here, and we'll track it just a little. As you can see, there are two lines here. You got David and two sons represented. Uh, On the one hand, you have the royal line, or what I call the throne line, represented through Solomon, as promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that line is Jeconiah who was cursed. But that traces down through Joseph, Christ's legal father, legal father. On the other hand, there was another son named Nathan. Uh, This is the genetic line or the bloodline. And through Nathan comes Mary, ultimately, through whom Jesus is born. So interesting, these precise things had to be in place in order for Jesus to meet the, all the requirements to be the Messiah. Had to be just exactly the way it was. Note the deportation to Babylon is very significant because it marked the end of Davidic succession in which someone from the line of David was seated on David's throne in Jerusalem. Remember, the throne, the kingship belongs to David. But that was broken at the Babylonian captivity. And that break continued on until Jesus was presented as the rightful heir to the Davidic throne at his first coming. But since the Jews rejected him, the throne of David continues to remain unoccupied. How long has it been since we've had a a, a king sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem? Well, it goes back prior to the Babylonian captivity. We're still waiting. It's still unoccupied. The next king to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem will be Jesus the Messiah. At the time of his second coming, when he comes to set up his kingdom. And his capital headquarters will be Jerusalem, where he will sit on David's throne. He is the only rightful heir to that throne, ultimately. Verse 12, And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shatiel, and Shatiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abud, and Abud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Elud, and Elud begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. This verse, verse 16 in the Greek, is explicitly clear that Jesus was born of Mary and not of Joseph. All the way through this entire section, it says, so-and-so begot this person, and then that person begot so-and-so. That's the pattern, all the way through, up till verse 16. But now here in verse 16, that pattern is broken. It does not say that Joseph begot Jesus. Rather, it simply says that Joseph was the husband of Mary. And then it says it was of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. 
Now, in the Greek, this is all the more clear. You see, when it says of whom, that is singular. It's not plural. Singular, referring to one person. And it is feminine, not masculine. Meaning this could only apply to Mary and not to Joseph. So here's what we're looking at. Matthew 1, 16. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, singular, fem, uh, singular feminine, was born Jesus, who is called Christ. This emphasis on Jesus being born of Mary is significant because it underscores the virgin birth. There was no human father involved. Jesus was born of the woman and not of the man. This is the fulfillment of prophecy stretching all the way back to the very first Messianic prophecy we have in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. We know what it says, right? God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And that's the point I want to make here. Her seed. The Messiah would be of the seed of the woman. And he was. As seen in the virgin birth of Jesus through Mary. Precision, precision, precision all the way through here. And I know we don't like to study genealogies. But when you understand the precise connections, it's really quite fascinating. Sorry, I thought maybe I'd elicit an amen there. But anyway, verse 17. <laughs> verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now Matthew, for his purposes, is merely drawing a sketch of the genealogical record in survey form. There are obvious omissions, as everyone acknowledges, in the record, and some unusual inclusions as well. Howard Voss says, in addition to the confirmed gaps, there are implied gaps because of the unequal time spans involved. From Abraham to David is about a thousand years, and from David to the captivity in Babylon, about 400 years, and from the captivity to the birth of Christ, about 600 years. So to say 14, 14, 14, I mean, just, you know, when you're talking about a thousand years and you're talking about 400 years, I mean, you can just see there's, there's some discrepancy. The reason why the genealogy is arranged in three brackets of 14 is really not known. Uh, but it was customary for Jews to arrange genealogies according to scheme, perhaps for memory purposes. Perhaps that's involved here. Uh, it is interesting, the commentaries bring this out, and again, we don't really know, but this is kind of interesting to note. The importance of, this is Moody Bible Commentary, the importance of the number 14 is unclear. But the name David, Hebrew, D-W-D, adds up to 14 on the basis of Hebrew numerology. Four, uh, D is four, plus uh, six, uh, W represents six, Plus four, again, D, which would equal 14. And since there were three letters, this may account for three sets of 14. Well, many commentators bring out this connection uh, as a possibility, pointing out uh, that the head of the list is the son of David. 
in verse 1, and therefore the intent may be to draw attention to the Davidic emphasis seen throughout the entire genealogy, and there is that emphasis. But again, we don't know for sure what is the purpose of the three segments of 14. As a footnote, uh, the name Jeconiah is repeated in verse 12 in relation to the third grouping to make the number of names 14. In the first grouping, uh, the Davidic throne is established. In the second grouping, the Davidic throne is cast down in abeyance in the Babylonian captivity. And in the third grouping, history brings us right to the one who is the rightful heir to the throne of David, namely the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as a subpoint, it is noted that in association with the first grouping in verses 2 through 5 is the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. In association with the second grouping in verses 6 through 11 is the establishment of the Davidic covenant. And in association with the third grouping in verses 12 through 16 that brings in the Messiah is, will ultimately be the establishment of the new covenant. Well, there are lots of interesting details here. But the main point is that in survey form, Matthew is showing that Jesus has the exact right genealogical credentials as the son of David, to be the Messiah. You talk about internal evidence that the Bible is true. It's a historical book. This is historical evidence based on genealogical records that were available at the time. The story of Jesus has both a human side and a divine side. On the human side is his natural credentials that line up perfectly with the messianic prophecies and requirements of Scripture as presented in Matthew 1, 1 through 17. On the human side is his supernatural credentials that line up perfectly with the requirements of Scripture as seen in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Jesus is both man and God, and his full story harmonizes perfectly with both in keeping with all the messianic requirements presented in Scripture. So as I say, the human side emphasized in the first 17 verses, and now the divine side in verses 18 through 25. So that's all kind of background. Uh, The human side, that's all in place. Now let's talk about the divine side. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Jewish betrothal was sort of like our engagement, our idea of engagement today. But it was stronger, stronger than that. Uh, It really involved a marriage commitment without the, the final sexual consummation of marriage. Normally, the betrothal period was about a year in duration, in which the groom made preparations for his bride, including the building of a house, often attached to father's house. Kind of gives significance to Christ saying, uh, you know, I'm going away and uh, I will prepare uh, in my father's house or many dwelling places. And, and I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive. All that imagery kind of ties here with the idea of the betrothal period. Well, when the groom was then ready uh, to uh, consummate uh, the official final consummation of the marriage, he would come at a, at a time unannounced and get his bride. He'd come with his, his uh, friends Uh, to the the bride's house to get her and take her back to father's house to consummate the marriage and have a wedding feast. Thus, the bride was expected to live ready. I mean, she had to live ready to meet her groom at any time. 
Wow, imagine that kind of arrangement. (laughs) Well, we as God's people are the bride of Christ, and and we are in the betrothal stage, as stated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Christ, our groom, has gone back to heaven to prepare a place for us. And at an unannounced time, he will return to receive his bride. Perhaps today, be ready. Live ready. That's why we emphasize living ready. Unfaithfulness during the time of the betrothal period was considered to be adultery. As the couple was considered to be legally married. Dissolution of the marriage at this point required a formal divorce or worse, a public stoning. It was in the context of this betrothal period that it became very evident that Mary was pregnant. Now we know from further revelation that this child was of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was a a supernatural reality brought about by the Spirit of God. But you know what? Joseph didn't know this. All he knew was that his betrothed Fiance was pregnant. Uh oh. Now what? What do we do about this? I mean, the Old Testament called for the death penalty for a person sexually unfaithful to their partner during this betrothal period, as seen in Deuteronomy 22. Now, we don't know that there was really much interaction. We don't know of any interaction between Joseph and Mary during this whole situation. All we know that she was clearly pregnant and Joseph knew it. And he knew that he was not the father. Can you imagine Mary trying to explain this to Joseph? We're just kind of surmising now, but can you imagine that kind of a scene? But honey, I haven't been unfaithful to you. God did it to me. Sure, honey. Right. She seemed so sincere. She was a very godly and sweet girl. What to make of it all? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Sure, you're pregnant and you come up with that wild excuse? Come on. Here I've been building the house over here for us too. We're going to live a life together. And now I come back and, and, and I find you pregnant. We all know how this happens. Come on. Verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He was a just, or the idea is a righteous man in terms of how he lived his life. He was a true, sincere believer who walked the walk, is the idea. The fact that his fiancée was pregnant put a cloud of suspicion over both of them. Now, Joseph knew he was innocent. But the proof was clear that Mary was pregnant and therefore must be guilty. Never in the annals of history had a virgin ever given birth. Joseph had no evidence, however, of another man being involved. But here was the reality of a pregnancy, which was undeniable. Now, the death penalty in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22 called for the death of both guilty parties. But here's the problem. Where's the guy? Who is the guy? There's no trace of another guy. There's no evidence of another guy. What to do? Joseph is is thinking about these things and grappling with these things. What could he do? He would not marry an immoral woman guilty of covenant unfaithfulness. He was a righteous man. He had his standards. Howard Voss says this, 
Two courses were open to Joseph. He could bring Mary before the court to be publicly charged and condemned, or he could put her away privately by drawing up a bill of divorce between the two between two or three witnesses without even spelling out the charges. So according to the laws of the times, he, he had a choice here. Which way is he going to go? Well, he was a just man with a reputation to protect, but he was also a merciful man and did not want to make Mary a public example of shame, and so he was minded to put her away secretly. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is interesting to me that God allowed Joseph to stir over these things for a period of time. Isn't it interesting? God sometimes allows us to go through very hard things. These are testing times. These are refining times. They are proving times. The character of Joseph shines through in the crucible of life. He was not bitter or vengeful, but rather thoughtful and deliberate, consistent with a righteous walk of faith that would not compromise and yet showed compassion. Had no evidence. That factors in here. There's no evidence of another guy. The text says, well, he thought about these things and he was thinking about these things deeply and troubled by them. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is the official explanation from heaven. This was a supernatural thing, a supernatural reality. The conception was of the Holy Spirit. Mary was innocent. Taking her as his wife did not infringe upon his righteous walk at all, at least not before God. Nelson's study Bible has this uh, comment, verses 1 through 17 established Jesus as a legal son of Joseph. Verses 18 through 25 denied that Joseph was Jesus' physical father. The first was necessary to establish Jesus' lineage to David and his royal right to be king. The second was necessary to establish his qualifications as God's son to be the savior of all people. Note once again, the Davidic emphasis comes to the fore as the angel addressed Joseph as what? Joseph, son of David. This is all about God fulfilling his promises through the line of David. Now, you don't have to be afraid when it comes to the will of God. The angel said to Joseph, do not be afraid. Lots of scary things are allowed to come into our lives. And yet, if God is leading us, we don't have to be afraid. You know, we live in scary times. Half the world, half the world, most of the world is scared to death. They're all terrified about everything all the time. And I mean, and the media loves it, you know. If it bleeds, it leads. And if it scares, it leads, right? I mean, scary news. We got more scary news. Interesting, interesting. There's terror, terror all the time. But we don't have to be afraid when it comes to the will of God. We do need to be wise, of course. But uh, we don't have to be afraid. We can trust him to work out his sovereign purposes. That's what the angel is saying. I love that. Don't be afraid. Jesus, after the resurrection, comes and says, don't be afraid. God so often says, don't be afraid. I don't think he wants his people to be afraid. Verse 21. 
He says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What a wonderful verse. Jesus was not to be named after his legal father, Joseph, which was customary. What do we name the son? We'll name him after the father. Well, don't name him after Joseph. After all, he's not the, not the real son of Joseph in the, the bloodline sense. Instead, he was to be named Jesus. You know that name which God has placed above all other names as we see in Philippians chapter 2? The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Now in scripture, when God names someone, that name signifies what defines a person. The name Jesus in the New Testament is really uh, correlates to the, the Hebrew name Joshua in the Old Testament. It essentially means Savior, and yet more literally means God Savior. Literally, Jesus is God Savior. This is who Jesus is. He is God Savior. While Joshua in the Old Testament was a type of Savior, small s, that God used, Jesus was to be the Savior, all capitals. He didn't just have the name Joshua, but rather was Jesus the Christ. Let's break this down just a little bit. Hebrew, Yehoshia, uh, corresponds to Joshua. Greek brings it across, Jesus, English, Jesus. Let's break it down a little further. Yehoshua is a compound name consisting of two words. Yeho is a prefix form of God's name Yahweh. Shua means to deliver, rescue, or save. So you can see Jesus means Yahweh saves. Or Yahweh is salvation. This is who he is. This is his name. Jesus is Yahweh God who saves. The name Jesus therefore means Savior because he is the God who saves. This is his very name. This is who he is. Jesus is Savior and God all wrapped up in one person. And this is emphasized in more detail even in the immediate context as we will see momentarily. But notice uh, Isaiah chapter 43 verse 11 says, I even I am the Lord, that's Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior, no Deliverer. His name would be called Jesus because he would save his people, that is God's people, from their sins. He is the Savior from sin and only God can do this because he alone is the Savior. Meaning Jesus has to be God. Only God is Savior. He's the God Savior. Commentators believe that in saying this, Jesus as Yahweh will save his people from their sins. This is really a, a reference to Psalm 130, verse 8. I give verse 7 here to give a little bit of the context. In context, in, in, in Psalm 130, verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, that's Yahweh, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he... Yahweh shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Same basic concept as we have here in Matthew 121. 
Well, for us who believe in Jesus, we have come to recognize him as our personal God, our personal Savior. It's personal to us. That's what makes salvation salvation. We have personally appropriated the truth of who Jesus is as our God Savior. And as we read on in the gospel story, we find that Jesus is the Savior of all who believe on him by what he did on the cross in dying for all of our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. New Bible commentary says the removal of sin was one of the features expected in the Messianic age. But the way in which Jesus was to do it was totally unexpected. And that's true. Verse 22. So all this was done so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying. Did you catch this? That it might be fulfilled? This is another great proof that Jesus is the true Messiah. Everything about him is fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew, in writing to the Jews, emphasizes the fulfillment of prophecy at least 12 times in the book. Verse 23, what is the prophecy? Well, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. This is a quote from Isaiah seven fourteen, which was a prophecy given 700 years before the birth of Christ. Here's how it reads. It does read, there we go, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew says, this is a fulfillment of this verse given by Isaiah 700 years previous. Now there is a context to Isaiah seven fourteen with absolute precision fulfillment. Isn't that just, I mean, just God's precision is just amazing. This was first given as a sign to Ahaz, King Ahaz. And when it says here, uh, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, the Hebrew word back here in Isaiah 714 is, is Alma, translated as virgin. In Isaiah 7, 14, it literally means a young woman who is not sexually active. Now, Ahaz was told of a virgin who would have a child. And before this child would know the difference between right and wrong, the two kings that Ahaz feared would come to nothing. As seen in the immediate context in Isaiah 7, 15 and 16. Stanley Toussaint gives us a good summary here. When the predicted events came to pass in a few years, the sign was proven true. However, the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy is seen in the Messiah. In other words, in Isaiah 7, uh, in other words, uh, the Isaiah 7:14 prophecy has a double fulfillment, a near and far accomplishment of the prediction with the ultimate being the final fulfillment in the care of the virgin Mary and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This is so consistent with prophecy, a near partial, a distant complete fulfillment. We should note that while the word uh, Hebrew word Alma translated as virgin in Isaiah 7:14 can generally refer to a young woman of marriageable age who is sexually inactive, when applied by the Holy Spirit to Mary in Matthew 1:23, the word used is Parthenos, 
which can only mean virgin in the strict sense of the word. No doubt, Mary was definitely a virgin. Luke 1.34, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? How can I be expecting? I, I, I haven't had sexual relations with a man. Mary was clearly a full-fledged virgin who had never had sexual relations with any man. This was a supernatural miracle performed by the Holy Spirit. Well, observe that uh, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This is what the term Emmanuel means. Literally, God with us. This is who Jesus is. He was God come in the flesh. He was God in a human body. What we call the incarnation. He was God with us. Emmanuel is his name in the sense of a descriptive title. This defines who Jesus is. So both his names, get this, both his names, Jesus, Yahweh saves, and Emmanuel, God with us, underscore that Jesus is God. The second member of the triune Godhead consisting of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2.9 says that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus was fully God living in a human body. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, sometimes people say, well, he's just the son of God. Like Jesus had a little boy and he was his son. And uh, so he's called the son of God. Well, that's completely an error. He is the son of God, but it means that he is of the very order and the very nature of God. Uh, Gabriel, the angel, said this. In Luke 1.35, he's talking to Mary, and uh, he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. But that same angel, in Matthew 1.23, says you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Well, the title, as I say, Son of God, simply means that he's of the order, the very nature of God. But note one more thing here. Matthew said, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Who's the they? Who's the they? I suggest it's you and me, believer. The they refers back to his people in verse 21, that he shall save from their sins. These are the people who come to believe in him and will personally recognize him as their God. God who is our Savior. He is Emmanuel to us. He is God with us. As Doubting Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, you have seen and believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. He is our God. God with us. Verse 24, 25 to finish out here this morning. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. You know, Joseph is sometimes called the forgotten hero of Christmas. Even though he was sorely tested during this challenging time, he proved himself righteous in his walk, merciful and compassionate in his response, obedient and responsive to God in that sense, and self-disciplined, by the way, in not having sexual relations with Mary until after the birth of the Christ child. Joseph was just the right man for the time, and God used him accordingly. 
Note also that verse 25 implies that after the birth of Christ, uh, the marriage of uh, Joseph and Mary was physically consummated. Other scriptures clearly bring out that Jesus had a number of stepbrothers and sisters. Well, wrapping this up here this morning, tying chapter 1 together, the Old Testament was shadowy. While the New Testament shines, as it were, direct sunlight on the subject, the Old Testament evolved much type and, and symbol while the New Testament reveals reality and substance. The Old Testament was much about predictive prophecy while the New Testament brings about fulfillment. I like this little story, uh, kind of in parable form makes the point. The story is told about an Englishman named Green who was walking through the woods when he came upon a stranger in the path. He was startled when the stranger smiled and waved to him. Oh, hello, Mr. Green, said the stranger. Obviously, this stranger wasn't a stranger at all, but for the life of him, Mr. Green could not place him. You ever had that experience? Yeah. Embarrassed but unwilling to admit a poor memory for names and faces, Mr. Green offered his hand. Ah, oh, yes, hello, good to see you, old boy. How long has it been? Well, said the other man, it was at Lady Asquith's, Asquith's reception last October, wasn't it? Nearly a year ago then. Mr. Green remembered Lady Asquith's reception and tried to recall all the people that he had met. This gentleman's face looked familiar, but he just couldn't place it. Still groping for clues to this fellow's identity, Green decided to ask a few questions. How is it with your wife? Quite well, said the other man. And you, still in the same business, I presume? Oh, yes, said the man, with a merry twinkle in his eye. I am still the king of England. Mr. Green, behold your king. Matthew writing to the Jews, emerging out of the shadowy pages of the Old Testament, says to Israel, and by way of application to all of us, that Jesus is the long-awaited promised one in the Old Testament scriptures. Behold your king. When the light of the gospel shines on him, we see him clearly for who he truly is. Ray Stedman says, as we open the Gospels, it becomes clear that the long-awaited moment has come. That promised and prophesied someone has arrived. And he steps forth in all the astonishing fullness of his glory. The story of Jesus is called the greatest story ever told. And it is precisely this because it is about the greatest person ever known. Behold Jesus, the God-Savior. Believe on him today, and he will save you from your sins. We call his name Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. We call him Emmanuel because he is God with us. Do you know him? Behold Jesus the Christ. Behold Jesus is God come in the flesh. Behold Jesus our Savior. Behold Jesus the King. Let's stand and have our closing song.